And so it came to pass that four men approaching middle age in varying states of health and fortune would spoil the movie Barry Lyndon, demanding satisfaction from anyone failing to heed this most dire of warnings. This is Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect films' most dastardly schemes, then compete to improve them. I'm your host, Count Attacula, and this week's movie is Stanley Kubrick's Rococo Barocco Chiaroscuro masterpiece, Barry Lyndon. So, Peril Pals, cock your pistol, take aim, and... Let's get diabolical. Welcome to this week's episode. As host for this week, I'm the recruitment officer for the panel of peril, who will compete against me at the close of the show in a fight to the death, as we each try to come up with the best alternative plan for the movie villain of the week, before we vote to name this week's most diabolical. As ever, I am joined by three lads as game as any I ever saw. Please introduce yourselves and tell me, what is your favourite period drama? And don't say ginger snaps. Ben. Hi, Ben here. And my favourite period drama, well, at first I thought I'm not a fan of period dramas at all, but then I really thought hard about it and I thought, Mm. of course, it's Sharp, starring Sean Bean. Excellent. I'm Gaz, and my favourite period drama, it depends what you mean by it, I had a couple, but one's just leapt to mind, which I suppose is a period drama, so I'm just going to say Seven Samurai. I'm pretty sure I've said that for something before, I'm going to use it again. Yeah, that's completely valid. I I wrestled with this a bit myself, because there are some films that period drama, you might say, is their secondary or tertiary genre. But I think it's fine. Whatever fits. Hello, I am the one they call Adam. I've realised what I was going to pick initially is not a period drama, so I can't pick that. It's just very in the style of... Was it Blade Runner? Wants to think. (laughs) So I'm going to go for the much overlooked, but very, very good, Mrs. Brown, starring old Billy Conley and Judi Dench. Beautiful. What were you going to pick? A film called Ready or Not, and I couldn't remember whether it was period drama or not, but it's not. It's like a big mansion. Basically, it's like a wedding there, and the bride turns out she's going to get hunted by the family and turns the table on the family and stuff. It's it's pretty good. Vaguely rings a bell. Wasn't the tagline something like, Rambo for weddings? <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> but in brackets, no Brian Dennehy. In brackets, she turns the tables on them. Winking emoji. <laughs> <laughs> Underneath the tagline, even the cake was in tears. (laughs) (laughs) We'll cut that. I used to write speeches, can't help it. All right, as for me, my favourite period drama, sticking strictly with films that don't really straddle any other genres, would be Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. Because otherwise you could say Crouching Tiger, right? That's also technically a period drama, but it's almost mm-hmm. a martial arts film. You know, likewise, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula could be a period drama. Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Godfather Part 2, with the De Niro sections. Yeah, technically, yes, right? Yes, yes. I would say Crouch and Tiger couldn't be, because it's not a period that ever existed. Well, it's meant to be. It has fantasy elements, but it... What? Is... Isn't there a date? They pop up a date on it. You know people can't balance on trees, Turner, right? <laughs> yeah, you but it's, it's, from a t- it's from a time. It's just got some... Little Mermaid doesn't fucking exist, but it happened at their particular time, whatever it was. Right. That's not a period drama either. No, it is. It totally is. It has period costumes and, and uh, houses and boats and, and a period uh, crab. But it's got mermaids. It's a f- uh, you guys have lost you. Beauty and the Beast. There you go. That's another period drama. Yeah, Beauty and the Beast. 100% is, yeah. Oh my God, you guys are whacked. 
You need to get whacked off. Beauty and the Beast is full of period accurate costumes and stuff. Yes, like yes, and, it is. And yeah. observations about French society at the time. I remember that period when the candles would dance around the house a lot. You can suck people yeah. in with the fancy dress and everything, but then people stay for the fantasy. Suck them in, suck them off, get them out the door. That's the retail <laughs> motto. <laughs> That's the Hollywood motto. <laughs> <laughs> Time now to delve into this week's film. Director Stanley Kubrick initially had his exacting eye fixed on a biopic of Napoleon, but lost financial backing thanks to the commercial flop of a similar project from Dino De Laurentiis. Not wishing to squander the extensive research he'd conducted into the period, Kubrick began looking towards other source material set in the same era. Having initially toyed with adapting what the Fist of Fun book once described as history's most mediocre novel, Vanity Fair, Kubrick ultimately rejected that concept too when a television adaptation went into production. He finally settled on Vanity Fair author William Makepeace Thackeray's earlier notable work, The Luck of Barry Lyndon, a darkly comic, picaresque tale of a young man from a genteel but financially ruined family who aspires to nobility and bullishly marries his way into a title. The film adaptation differs in several ways from the source material, focusing on the grim twin spectres of pistol dueling and gambling that haunt Barry's rise and fall through society, and highlighting Barry's passivity in his own odyssey. Redmond Barry is a social chameleon, adapting his manner to the various father figures that drop in and out of his life until he himself becomes his idea of a father. He is a passenger as much as an opportunist, rolling with the circumstances that befall him impotent in his efforts to manifest his ultimate goal. Scenes of the film are framed in painstaking detail to evoke 18th century paintings, in particular the works of William Hogarth, with barely any blocking as the actors remain as still as possible, so that they might almost at times be mistaken for props in the mise-en-scene. Partly a necessity due to the NASA camera lenses required to capture the candlelit scenes that had difficulty with movement but also to convey the staid manner of polite society, and of course to capture that thing pictures are said to do, tell a story of a thousand words. Like a painting, Barry Lyndon begs to be scrutinised, and where the performances are not physically emotive, emotion has a huge bearing nonetheless, conveyed in stances and glances. Moreover, as Barry's life progresses, save for the punctuations of brief outbursts of kinetic violence and feeling, the subject himself grows ever more still in the frame with each scene until we take our last glimpse of him, his back to the viewer in freeze frame, as he finally becomes a tragic and mysterious figure in a painting he's not even the subject of. As it's our second Kubrick episode, it seems like the appropriate time to introduce a new feature, which I'm calling What Crazy Shit Did Stanley Get To on This One? <laughs> I'll tell you. Three facts about the making of Barry Lyndon, two of which will be true and one of which will be false. If you can identify the red herring, you will not be shot. So, number one, the gut-wrenching scene where Barry's dying son beseeches his parents not to fight so that they may all be reunited in heaven was filmed at Longleat House. And during the filming session, the zoo's monkeys could be heard screaming. In order to deal with this, Kubrick ordered the crew to deliver a large quantity of bananas, which made the monkeys sick, replacing the loud screaming with a more manageable, dull chorus of groans. <laughs> Number two, for the scene in which Lady Lyndon's attendant reads her French poetry as she is being bathed, in order to keep actress Marissa Berenton as still as possible, Kubrick asked her to take flunitrazepam, a drug that came into medical use in 1974 as a treatment for insomnia, and which is now more commonly known as Rohypnol, or the date rape drug. And number three, for the final scene, which Barry walks on crutches towards his waiting carriage, highlighting the fact that he's now missing the leg injured by Lord Bullingdon in their duel, Kubrick asked actor Ryan O'Neill if he would consider having his leg amputated, even going so far as to have an ambulance ready. That's got to be the fakey, surely. He was, he was a bit of a mad lad, Kubrick. But I don't see him going as far as asking an actor, particularly Ryan O'Neill, who was quite a big deal at the time, to have his leg amputated. But you can see him getting another actor roofied. 
Oh yeah, definitely. You do that, particularly to a female actress. <laughs> female actress. The um, Rahipnol female actress uh, would be my fakey because he stated he's against drugs in, in interviews and things like that. So I wouldn't have thought he would try and sedate somebody just for method acting or whatever you want to call it. it just seems to go against, I think, what he purports to be against. Okay, um, Ben, you're going to give us a full house? Do you think maybe he would get bananas <laughs> delivered to monkeys to shut them up? I think he would, yeah. I don't think he'd rehypnol someone because they would just yeah. slide down to the bath. They wouldn't sit up doing what he wants to do. He'd get them some sort of form-fitting backing to the bath, I reckon. Personally engineer it. <laughs> just in case I kind of brushed over it too fast, Flunitrazepam only came into common use in 1974, the year before. Okay. So not a lot was known about yeah. it. It was meant to be a drug for insomnia. At the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with it because I can't be bothered to change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and that's as good as reason as any. <laughs> Turner and Ben, you're both going with the roofies and Gaz. You're going with the amputated leg. Turner and Ben, you're correct. Gaz, you've been shot. Bang. Point blank range. Right in the face. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. <laughs> that is insane that he would request an actor to have their leg amputated. Yeah, both Ryan O'Neill and Nick Nolte have told that anecdote, but Ryan O'Neill seems to think Kubrick was kidding, whereas Nick Nolte is pretty sure he wasn't. Well, they're two notorious drunkards, of course, so I'm sure it's <laughs> right. been embellished over the mm. years as well. Yeah, with the ambulance waiting and stuff like that, <laughs> yeah. I reckon Kubrick probably did ask him, but he probably was joking both times, and Nick Nolte was like, yeah! mumbling and grumbling the way he does. Is he a pirate? <laughs> yeah, you heard him talk. He talks like this. Ah. I'm Ryan O. Big Deal. <laughs> I thought I was going to catch you out this week. I, I thought, uh, oh, wow. Flew in the trouser 1974. Wow. You have to get up pretty early in the morning to catch me out. Catch you out every other fucking time. So, uh, you know, well, when you're yeah. <laughs> Not on a Cuban movie, so <laughs> suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs> Now, let's find out what the panel of peril thought of the film before we throw open the chat to talk in more detail about our favourite aspects, sequences and lines. And I'd like to start with Adam, because I know this is the first time you've seen Barry Lyndon. And yes, I really enjoy sharing films I love with people who haven't seen them before. So I'm keen to hear your thoughts. Yes, Count Tacular, you are quite right. This is my first viewing of it. You said you watched it on a box set, didn't you? You got a Kubrick box set, and was it in there? Yeah, so it was a, a DVD box set of Kubrick films that yeah. included The Shining and 2001, which is mainly where yeah. I wanted to get it. I'm pretty sure, Gaz, you got it at the same time as well. I think it was the first box set you got. You also bought a, a later, better edition later on, didn't you? The, like a coffee table set piece that had a few more films in it and some uh, yeah. production stills and, and that kind of thing. Mm. But the mm. first DVD box set that they had, I had never even heard of, of Barry Lyndon before and I was kind of intrigued by it, but I thought it was more like a bonus because I bought it for, for the other films in it, you know, Full Metal Jacket, stuff that was really well known. Yeah. As it turned out, my favourite two films were the ones that I hadn't seen before uh, mm. and this and Eyes Wide Shut. Mm. And uh, at the time, I kind of enjoyed it just on a surface level. It was a very nice print and it looked great and everything, but I just really mm. enjoyed the story for what it was. Mm. I've seen it a number of times since and maybe too many times and now I enjoy it on a lot of different levels. But yeah. You know, that that's good for me, I guess. I really enjoyed it as well and but I, I love it the because just Kubrick each I think each time he goes into a movie he goes, I'm gonna do something totally different now. They used to call him the seventh Python, Kubrick, because he always used to want to do something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. And interestingly, this film is quite similar to a Clockwork Orange. And there was quite a big period between them, but it has a really similar structure. It has this kind of rise and fall story. But that was his previous film, right? Yes. Yeah, he hadn't made any in between, yeah. And the rise and fall of the of the protagonist and the way that uh, some of the scenes are framed and shot, you know, with the slow zooms out. There's a mm -hmm. ton of similarities between this and Clockwork Orange. But on the other hand, yeah. In a lot of ways, it's a massive departure. I think so. Anyway, that's what I like about Kubrick the most. He doesn't seem to sit still in a genre sort of thing or a or a type or a style. Yeah. He just goes, no, what what else am I going to do? And, and with this, it's a departure. He's gone, I'm going to do period drama. I'm going to make it look really authentic. And I'm going to have some a lovely story arc through it all. And I'm going to have some great actors. And then he's going to have, you, you can tell it's there's certain bits of it 
where you like you can tell it's a Kubrick yeah influenced film and stuff like that. But it's it's really great and it was for me it was like obviously it's a film not seen before, but it was like refreshing as well. It's like I don't know. It's I watched. 2001, I love that again. For after, for, I haven't seen it for ages, but then watching this again has just made me go, wow, I really need to reevaluate his films again, even yeah. though I love them already. Yeah, his films in particular, I say rewatch, I think that they are densely layered and you can see mm. it's quite evident that he was kind of learning on the job. Yeah. He obviously started out as a photographer and really mm. developed his filmmaking skills in this. Clockwork Orange is kind of quasi futuristic, isn't it? It's set in the sort yeah. of a future. And his films were quite forward-looking for that little period there. And obviously, Barry Lyndon is a historical piece. But it almost becomes contemporized because of the filmmaking techniques, the lens they got. You don't feel like uh, you're looking back at the past. You feel like you've gotten to it. Yeah, It feels like you're in it. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, I'll get into some other stuff as, as uh, the rest of you talk about the other stuff. But I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, I really loved it. And I'm really glad you picked it. So, yeah, thanks. Good. Gaz, let's go with you next. I have sensed maybe you need to be in the right mood to enjoy films, even that you've enjoyed before. So on that level, I'm curious, did you enjoy, I know you've seen this before, did you enjoy it this time? Well, I can't remember why, but I was Googling about the film afterwards. And you know those weird Google things that pop up, like stuff like, is Barry Lyndon good? What is Barry Lyndon? <laughs> I was looking for how long part two was because I stopped at the intermission. That was it. And I think I clicked on, is Barry Lyndon good? And it took me to Reddit. And I found a, a funny comment by Zevon Strutz, who said, probably the most underrated Kubrick film. So boring. But the last half hour of the film is strangely hypnotic and interesting. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. <laughs> I think I might agree with that. But what I would say is in some films, there's a quality that I would describe as quite boring, which isn't necessarily a bad thing mm. in terms mm. of pace and plot. It's very slowly paced deliberately. Like you say, there's the mm. scenes with long zooms in or out, which right. in modern filmmaking, you could probably half, half the time that they take to get through. Yeah, And in that way, it could be seen as quite boring and i found it hard to get through but mm. i do still think it's a classic film and it's not one that lets down the kubrick canon at all actually it's a beautiful film it's a beautiful film there's there's lots of locations mm. that remind me of roundabout where i live actually yeah near, near the start where he has the duel with leonard rossiter's character i walk past there every day or a place sorry a place that looks like that with the dog yeah obviously the candle lit scenes are extraordinary uh the the new camera lens yeah. that he mm. he uh invented himself to to make that possible yeah so yeah it, it's it's a fantastic film it's a fantastic film but it requires it requires mental preparation before you dive <laughs> into it i would say yeah you need to be in the right mood <laughs> it's like 2001 i'm glad there's an intermission there because Mm. It's a good point because I think, yeah, modern films, they maybe they cut half hour off it or something like that just to keep people engaged. But I'm glad they go, oh, no, have, have a break. Go and get a chalk ice. <laughs> and he famously did so with The Shining. He cut, literally cut half an hour off it and yeah. refused to do so with Barry Lyndon despite the mm. response to it, which I think yeah. is really brave. But, you know, the, the thing with those slow, luxurious zooms in and out, they're not even really about establishing. It's so painterly that when you zoom in, it's like when you experience a piece of art and you have to kind of look at the details in it, especially art of that period, and the opposite when it when you get the slow zooms out. So everything in it has purpose. I remember the first time I watched Once Upon a Time in the West thinking uh, every, every frame of this film is a work of art because it's so artfully framed and, and, the, and the, I don't want to keep saying mise-en-scene, because uh, people are going to stop listening to us, but <laughs> you know what I mean. You know what I mean. And then I saw Barry Lyndon, and I was like, okay, this is this is the one. Actually, this is literally a series of works of art. But I, yeah, I personally enjoy the pace. I think it it needs a bit of room to breathe. Anyway, Ben, what about you? What did you? I'm assuming you've never seen this before. Yeah, it was my first time, and very much like Gaz. I found it a strange one in that it was equal parts mesmerizing and dull. <laughs> like I say, technically it's breathtaking. Yeah. I was pleased to hear you talk about the paintings because I thought you could imagine pretty much any shot being taken straight from an oil painting that was hanging 
on the walls of one of those stately homes. Some of them are based on real paintings, yeah, and you can you can right. see direct comparisons between them. Every shot is meticulous. Yeah, the lighting—it's like true to period lighting. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It, le- it lends it a real air of truth, I think. Yeah. So the le- lens Gaz was talking about, he didn't make it. It's a NASA lens. But what he did was he used to work with these uh, older rear projection cameras and he knew they were the only ones that could take this lens. So he called up a buddy at a film studio he used to work and he goes, oh, you know, what, what happened to those old um, rear projection cameras that we used to use? And he's like, oh, we don't use those anymore. He's like, oh, we still got them because I'm really nostalgic and I'd love to have one as like just a conversation piece. I'll keep it around in my house and can I buy it? And it, the guy was like, yeah. And then when he told the studio about it, he's like, are you fucking kidding? Do you know how rare those cameras are and how much they're worth? Wow. Just because we don't <laughs> use them anymore. So he like swindled them and got this this camera. <laughs> and then he had this engineer guy and he put the the lens together with the camera. And that's what they invented. But it was so good and so fast that in the daytime scenes, they had to block out the sunlight because it was too much. Well, the old Mr. Burns, eh? Yeah. Charles Montgomery Kubrick. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, honestly, I couldn't take my eyes off it. But then at the same time, I was never able to find the connection with Redmond Barry that made me care about what happened to him. Okay. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Henry Hill in Goodfellas in a way the kind of rise and fall. Yeah. But the difference is Henry Hill is charming and he's funny and you kind of understand why he makes the decisions he does. But with probably the exception of the things he did following the the death of his son, which was really nicely played by Ryan O'Bigdeal. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't see enough of it from Redmond. The narrator would fill you in on things occasionally. But if anything, that kind of put me further at arm's length. That, I think, is intentional, actually. Yeah, that I was going to say, he's a cold fish, essentially, isn't he? Because he's, he gets emotionally shafted by Nora at the very beginning. Yeah. And that, basically, he's dead. Dead inside. He's almost a blank slate, isn't he? Yeah. Nora, interestingly, describes him in a very odd way. I don't know if you picked up on this. But when she's talking to Captain Quinn, and he's complaining, Oh, you used to giving your intimate things to young men, are you? <laughs> she describes him as meaning no more to him than a lapdog or yeah. a parrot. And that's a weird yeah. thing to say about somebody. But that's yeah. what he is. He's a parrot. Every social situation he climbs into, he latches onto somebody and he kind of almost mm. becomes them to the point where when he meets the Chevalier, he literally becomes the Chevalier to escape. So he's he's meant to be kind of a, a blank slate. But on, on the whole, boring but enjoyable. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say give it a watch if you're a fan of cinema and you want to see a masterclass in composition and lighting. Yeah. That would be my rating. Which is a very specific rating, but a rating nonetheless. That's out of five, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget the cinematography, because like you said, there's shots that are just pure art, just moving yeah. pieces oh, yeah. of art, and you're just like, wow. Yeah. So one of the things I was hoping to achieve by bringing this movie up is that we were talking about, especially as I think about how Kubrick is seen as this kind of cold filmmaker, and I've always felt like this really proves that wrong mm. because it's so it's so obvious that there's precision and, and precise feelings about composition and the way that the shots are done but also even though the actors are trying to remain still the performances in this are really like moving and he is concerned with the actors and, and their performance i think i don't subscribe to the theory that kubrick's a cult filmmaker anyway because i think uh... i don't know I think in this instance, the coldness comes from the coverage that he doesn't shoot for the scene where Benjamin's dying, for example. As I recall it, that's near enough a one, sort of a mid mid shot. You get the occasional cut across to Lady Linden, but I don't think you really get a close up of Barry or what's the little shed called? Little kid? Brian. 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 Yeah. So I think. It's not necessarily that he's not willing to deal with grief or high emotion. It's more that it's shot in a slightly detached way. Not as up close and personal as perhaps might affect people more. You don't get a tight close-up, but you certainly do get close-ups on Barry and Brian in that scene. Is it not slightly angled off to the side on a slightly obtuse angle as well, so you don't see Barry's 
full face. Am I misremembering that? No, he, yeah, he's, you are, he's yeah. full You on. see him, yeah, bawling his eyes out and snot coming out of his nose. And, and Brian, you even see up close and you see his kind of gaunt little face shrouded yeah. in this bandage and it's really quite horrifying and affecting. Mm. I'm like Michael Jordan. I say, fuck them kids. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question for you. Yeah. At the start, when Nora's playing hide the ribbon, yeah. she describes Barry as uh, no more than a boy. Yeah. Little scamp starting out in life. The guy was like 33. He looked like Luke Perry or something. <laughs> well, he was having to play a guy through his, most of his adult life, so I think that they, they hit a sweet spot. I don't think he looks that old. He does. He kind of gets away with He's like a Leo DiCaprio, and he? he can keep playing 17 until he's 30-something or whatever it was. I can't remember. <laughs> Mel Gibson. Been told I can play anywhere from 25 to, oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody have any favourite moments or sequences from the film? Adam? Uh, my favourite sequence was the Highwaymen uh, right, sequence yeah. right at the great. start. <laughs> the negotiating for the little scraps that you can get. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid we can't be doing that for you now today, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I shall be taking your horse, I'm afraid. He's so polite. <laughs> It seems out of place in a, in a way, doesn't it? But then it's just like, oh, and then that happens and then cracks on. And then he's like on his arse completely. And that's when he joins the army, isn't it? It's just, uh, he sets him on that, you know, where he thinks he's going to go off with that 10 guineas and go to town and start a new life or whatever. And then he's all of a sudden he's, he's down and out, completely down and out. It's all about the best laid plans of Mice and Men in it. The gang after Glay. He wants agency in his life, but it's the one thing that eludes him because... Yeah. Life keeps just happening to him. And he wouldn't have found himself in the circumstances he did had that not happened to him. So, yeah. The book is obviously, as I said, a picaresque, and you expect that to come with a certain amount of rogue adventure and it's going to be fun and funny. Mm. But then the film focuses so much on the tragedy of his life in the second half. It's nice to have a good moment of levity in the start. Gaz, what about your favourite moment? I'm going to have to go with the... Intermission epilogue? <laughs> the duel with Leonard Rossiter's captain mm. character purely <laughs> for Rossiter's facial expressions yeah. that impacts him. <laughs> it yes. him. It's just comedy gold, his face like yeah. rictus frozen in terror. Especially the moment where they ask him, if Barry goes to London, would you consider the matter closed? He's like, Yes, this is a simple apologise. And then when he realises he's not going to back down, his eyes just widen slightly more. They're already yeah. quite wide anyway, but then they just go. You can see why Kubrick loved him so much. Yeah. It's even funny just when Barry shoots him and he just planks straight over like Del Boy through the fucking bar. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he's amazing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Ben, you have a favourite moment? Oh, well, yeah, actually... The two that I had listed were just covered. So the third one <laughs> that I had, which which is actually probably from my favourite part, and it's only a, a very short establishing shot, but it's of the castle when he's become Barry Lyndon. Yeah. And I think it's just after the gentry starts shunning him, he goes to sit with one of the lords for dinner and invites him yeah. out and he gets turned down. The following shot, it's an establishing shot of the castle and it's in this morning fog. Yeah. Oh my God, it was stunning. I, I kind of stopped it and paused it. I was like, wow, there was so much to see. It was just gorgeous. Yeah. I know exactly which one you were talking about. There was one other one for me as, as well, where I think it's when Brian first gets taken ill. And then as a coach, it's, it's just a shot framed as the hillside. And then underneath, just going along the road, there's a little coach just tracking along this. The, and I'm like, holy yeah. shit. <laughs> it's yeah. just, yeah, just fab. You're probably already aware Kubrick's daughter was responsible for taking photographs of like, the locations that the oh, really? shoots were then usually based on. So she would go and get those great angles and he would then go and shoot it with the film camera. So yeah, she was responsible for a lot of those choices and yeah, wow. thank God because they're so well considered. Yeah. And then the other moment I'd like to highlight is the fight with Pat Roach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pat Roach. <laughs> 
Pat Roach. <laughs> Always getting in fights, Pat Roach. Yeah. You need a, a bare chested man to box. You got Pat Roach yeah. back then, didn't you? <laughs> I didn't want to say it before you spoke in case it was your favorite moment, but when you were talking about Lenny Rossiter before, one of my favorite things is just how much welly he puts into his dance. He's an unbelievable dancer. How does he, where does the energy come from in a man of his age? It's like a, a twatty English version of the Can Can, isn't it? They're doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an Englishman. Swat, I am sweaty English. <laughs> but um, my favourite scene actually is when Barry first meets Lady Linda after he's seen her in the the garden. When he meets her at the evening and the card game, she excuses herself to go off to the balcony, and he follows her out. And it's completely silent and very slow and deliberate. And the way they move towards each other is like a dance you know, before they kiss. And it's also lusty and empty. And you you kind of know right away that this isn't going anywhere good. But it's all played out with like facial expressions and stuff. But then the other the other scene that I really love is when he approaches Sir Charles Linden and he's going, uh, he wants to step into my shoes. Into yeah. my shoes. <laughs> Nothing great. <laughs> Anybody got any favorite lines? I'm getting in first before I lose them all. Oh, okay. Uh, I actually have Gaz down first and you down last, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> let's screw Gaz. It's yeah, from the sure. duel, which is why I want to get in. It's the duel with uh, Leonard Ruster. Okay. Is he dead? Quite dead. <laughs> <laughs> Love the delivery of it. Beautiful. All right, and Gaz? My line is from the Prussian army captain. Yeah. And it was an exceptionally Partridge-esque moment at the end of their scene drinking together when he simply stands up and exclaims, Jesus, man, ist unter arrest! It's <laughs> 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 like, what? <laughs> what kind of card really? German Hot is Sabrine? this? Really? <laughs> See ya! <laughs> Adam, favourite line? Very simple one. It's more to start, and it's Barry when he's just about to do the duel, and they think he's going to back down. We all mm. think he's going to back down, and he said, "I'm not sorry, and I'll not apologise, and I'd sooner go to Dublin as to hell." Yeah, that's great. And you're like, and you're thinking this. It's up to that point. You're thinking he's just an absolute wet lettuce, and he's just going to at any point now. You know, he throws a drink on him and all that kind of stuff. Mm. He's going to back down, and it's that point where you think, "Oh, okay." He's actually, yeah. uh, he's got some minerals, this kid. I never met a boy before a game. Yeah. <laughs> In that case, I've got a couple. I, I thought somebody would pick one of these for sure, because you mentioned the scene, the highway scene, and that's got one of my favourite lines. Mm. I should like to oblige you, but with people like us, we must be able to travel faster than our clients. Good day, young sir. <laughs> <laughs> and then his first father figure, first of, of many, is Captain Grogan, who becomes his second in the duel, and then they meet again when he's enlisted. Unfortunately, he gets shot in the incredible display of a, British yeah, military nice tactics. Big kiss as well, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he right says, there, kiss me, lad. Kiss me, my boy, for we'll never meet again. <laughs> Thanks for stealing my fucking line for Alpha Bender. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you might not say that as you were lying. <laughs> Before we get to the good bit, if you're new to the podcast and you're enjoying it, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you can. It helps us to keep making these. And listen, if you're still on the fence, keep listening. Like I say, the good bit is coming. In Barry Lyndon, spurred on by his father's death in a pistol duel and the romantic rejection of his card game companion and cousin, Redmond Barry flees his home to escape a justice that's never coming, and stumbles from one stroke of fortune to the next, into the style and title of Barry Lyndon, before finally aiming to take agency in his destiny by trying and failing to court the nobility and purchase the title of a lord. Having successfully cuckolded the former Lord Lyndon and taken his place in the lives of his widow and young son, Lord Bullingdon, Barry attempts to become a lord fully, 
by bankrupting his family, buying up prestige works of art, and courting other lords to gain favour and the audience of the king. But his plan falls apart when Lord Bullingdon provokes Barry into ungentlemanly conduct, brutally beating his stepson in front of the assembled lords and ladies, reminding them all of his low birth. But how did the panel of peril rate the plan? Was it a good concept? And how well do you think it was pulled off, Gaz? Uh, he pulls it off pretty damn well, I think. He gets to where presumably he intends to go, whether that's a straight line or a general kind of I want money and a hot wife that I can treat like shit or just a general I just want to improve my situation. I think the thing that's his undoing is when his biological son dies and he becomes a shell of himself at that point. I think that Lord Bullingdon in an actual duel with him wouldn't stand a chance. Yeah. If he hadn't have been a broken man from his son dying. Do you think that there was still a chance for him to become a lord at that point though? Would he have ever been able to regain the favour of the guy that he tried to meet for dinner in, in the scene we spoke about before? He seems to be shunned by society after the, mm. the time he beats Lord Bullingdon in the recital. Yeah, yeah, true. I don't know. It's the answer to that. But the path that he set himself on up until that scene, he's like he's got the gift of the gab. Is the the main thing I suppose, isn't it? Mm. Uh, the old famous Irish gift of the gab, and he's uh, he's making a good fist of it up until then. All right, all right. I rate it good. Mm. Adam, I disagree with Gaz there. That I don't think he's got the gift of the gab at all. He's just he just spends somebody else's money essentially and just throws money at the problem. Hoping eventually that's going to solve solve it, and and it, clearly he doesn't he doesn't understand the value of that money. He doesn't understand the value of what he's what he's buying, yeah, and how he puts it to use essentially. And it clearly has little to no impact at all because, yeah, I think the the only thing that the the monarch comments on is the fact that he raised a, a regiment of troops. Right. For the Revolutionary War. Yeah, I agree with you, actually. I think far from having the gift of the gab, not only does he let other people speak on his behalf there, but one of his best lines is when they're showing him fine art. And the best thing you can say about it is, I like the use of the colour blue by the artist. And everyone's like, yes. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ben, what do you think? How many broccolis? Well, it depends on when you think his scheme began. Did it begin... When his mum said, oh, you need to get yourself a title, when she Lady Macbethed him. Yeah. So before that, he was just washed away with the tides. Or was he always seeking this better life? He was always seeking to better himself, and he wanted to get into higher society. That's you know evident from the first time he sees Captain Quinn. He wants to be fancy. Right. That's what I took from it, yeah. But to be a lord specifically, because I think we can all agree that he gets what he wants to a point because he becomes yeah. Barry Lyndon. And the first half of the film is very deliberately, this is this man's rise. So he gets to that point in society, but in the plan, I'd say I was specific about he wants to become a lord and that's the thing that he fails at. Right. Well, in, in, that, in that case, I think he's really successful, like you say, up until that point. Yeah. And then he just blows it by basically doing what he thinks rich people should do, but not really knowing. Mm. Like you say, he's trying to mimic people, but it's like a bad yeah. approximation. Because he doesn't really understand the thinking and and have the education behind it, so I'd say he gets five florets of broccoli for for having a good crack at it, for getting a few paintings, for befriending a lot of the the gentry. But yeah, it ultimately fails because he doesn't really know what he's doing. This is the part of the show where the panel of peril compete for the title of season three's most diabolical. Up for grabs is one point for each vote, which will go towards the series leaderboard. Barry tried to become Lord Linden by throwing his lady wife's fortune at a collection of fine art, but was unable to conceal his base nature. So, how would you have become a lord, Adam? Big Bad Baz. Bugger boy. B-dog. Butterbean Barry. <laughs> Barry burgles Billy. Have you noticed a pattern? Mr. Linden is desperate to keep living in the style he has been used to since marrying Lady Linden. But as a financially independent gentleman, 
As a former decorated military man himself, we see Barry having raised a regiment of troops for the Revolutionary War in order to curry favour with King George III. I think instead of spending frivolously on overpriced arts and plots of land, Barry decides on a more patriotic expenditure. Barry continues to seek ways of supporting the crown in its efforts to defeat the rebellion across the Atlantic. In his attempts to raise yet more regiments or platoons for the war, he finds various suppliers of supplies that would benefit his soldiers. Rifles, gunpowder, raw materials and food are not cheap and his task is daunting. As he speaks with various merchants about securing low prices, they suggest having a look at the stock that isn't of the best quality. Barry agrees, and a number of the merchants agree to show him what they have. Poor quality iron and steel, broken weapons, damp gunpowder, damaged carriages and trailers, deemed unsuitable for use, outdated or too time-consuming to fix. Now Barry is well aware the war isn't the walkover that England thought it would be, and that supply lines are being stretched and the Allies are thin on the ground. He has an idea. Barry agrees to purchase all the stock he sees and any similar goods in the future, but for a fraction of the prices he'd normally pay to kit out his troops. Having saved a small fortune, he is able to raise significantly more soldiers than he could previously. He pays for the extra weapons to be made, for the bare minimum of repairs to the equipment, just enough so it looks fit for purpose. Knowing that the government are desperately looking for more soldiers and willing for, to forgo the normal vetting processes of suppliers, Barry is guineas in. <laughs> Lord Wendover is amazed by Barry's achievements, as are his fellows lords and ladies, and in turn, so is the king. It doesn't matter that a lot of this stuff is cheap crap, or completely unfit for use. It's all about appearances. Barry looks like a true friend and patriotic servant of the crown. The fact that the war is going so poorly and that England will eventually lose is advantageous. He can blame any defective equipment on the merchants that sold it to him or sabotage by the rebels who have been attacking British supply lines. It doesn't matter. Barry is on the king's nice list. It's not long before he's granted a peerage and access to the gravy train that is the House of Lords. So, in a nutshell, Barry saves money by buying broken artillery, uses savings to buy more soldiers, which looks more impressive. Yeah. Instead of spending all the money on, you know, it says he, he spends loads and loads of money on overpriced art plots of land for silly amounts of money. Yeah. One way to curry the king's favour, I thought, was fairly obvious. And the, and the king actually says in the film, oh, you should raise another regiment or whatever and, and go, go yourself. yourself. Yeah. I thought that was more like, uh, go yourself, I don't give a shit about you, dig. Yeah, exactly. This is it. And I thought, well, there you go. He's not impressed by whoever Barry is else. You know, I don't know what he's done for the king other than raise a regiment. But he's clearly not impressed by anything else. And the fact that he has raised the regiment, you know, and he's saying, do some, do a bit more. I was like, well, surely, you know, if he raises 10 reg regiments or 20 or whatever mm. and sends them over, regardless of what the quality of the, the, the goods are, as we know fairly recently, the government don't tend to give two shits about whether something's fit yeah. for purpose and whether they've paid hundred millions of pounds for it or not. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. And you might find someone has a similar approach a little bit later oh. on. Oh. <laughs> nice one, Bug. You're speculating that either Gaz or myself might have a similar approach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not, no, not Gaz. <laughs> Gaz, you got anything to say or query? Questions, comment? I do not. <laughs> All right, then. In that case... Let's hear from, from you. Who do you mean by you? Me? Yes, I was continuing <laughs> to address you from before. 
<laughs> I've been relegated to last for every section of the way back, guys. I couldn't tell with your, with your lazy eye. Sorry. I've been treated like the, a young Barry Lyndon, sent on my way to Dublin. No, you've been treated like Lord Bullingdon, spanked. <laughs> Here we go. He's Look at who's stretching, he's preparing, stretching his bullshit muscle. <laughs> You don't have the guts to be what you want to be. You need people like me so you can point your fucking fingers and say, that's the bad guy. In the 1980s, Cuban refugee Tony Montana arrives in Florida, USA, where he is sent to a refugee camp with his best friend Manny Ray and their companions Angel and Chi Chi. The four are released and given green cards in exchange for murdering a former Cuban general at the request of Miami drug lord Frank Lopez. They find work as dishwashers at a restaurant, but are dissatisfied. Tony proclaims that he is meant for bigger things. Frank's right-hand man, Omar Suarez, sends the four to purchase cocaine from Colombian drug dealers. Tony and Angel are captured at gunpoint and Tony is forced to watch Angel being dismembered with a chainsaw before Manny and Chi Chi rescue him. The three kill the Colombians and personally deliver the recovered drugs and money to Frank, suspecting that Omar set them up. During their meeting, Tony becomes attracted to Frank's trophy wife, Elvira. Tony and Manny begin working for Frank. Later, Tony visits his mother and younger sister Gina, the latter of whom he is overprotective of. Disgusted by his life of crime, his mother throws him out. Manny is attracted to Gina, but Tony tells him to stay away from her. Frank sends Tony and Omar to Cochabamba, Bolivia to meet with cocaine kingpin Alejandro Sosa. During the meeting, Omar is unhappy when Tony negotiates a large deal without Frank's approval. Sosa later has his men hang Omar from a helicopter, telling Tony that he was a police informant and that Frank has poor judgement for having trusted him. Tony vouches for Frank's organisation, Sosa takes a liking to Tony and agrees to deal with him, but warns him never to betray him. Seeing that Frank is infuriated by Omar's death and the size of the deal with Sosa, Tony sets up an independent cocaine operation. Mel Bernstein, a corrupt police detective on Frank's payroll, accosts Tony at a nightclub and attempts to extort money from him in return for police protection. Tony spots Gina fraternising with a man and beats them both when he sees him grope her. Hitman then attempts to kill Tony, who escapes with a bullet wound. He confronts Frank and Bernstein, certain that they orchestrated the attack. Frank confesses his involvement at gunpoint and begs for his life, but Tony has Manny shoot him dead before proceeding to kill Bernstein. Tony marries Elvira and becomes the distributor of Sosa's products using his profits to build a multi-million dollar business empire and construct a large, heavily guarded estate. Now imagine all of that, but with Redmond Barry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the hook. <laughs> <laughs> Push you to the limit. Now do your real plan. <laughs> We're gonna need a montage. But instead of cocaine, <laughs> I don't know, tobacco or something. Tobacco. Tobacco. Seed of poppy. Wish <laughs> <laughs> to see you approaching this with uh yeah. you know the same respect that I give your films. Reverence is Gaz's watchword. Reverence. Well, what happened was I was going to to write it as a bedtime story for the boy. Brian. But then I didn't. (laughs) Okay. That would have been something. Yeah, this was always the plan. That would have been effort, at least. (laughs) Effort. Effort. How dare you, sir? I demand satisfaction. (laughs) Did you copy that from somewhere? Wikipedia? I watched Scarface beforehand is what it would say well so watching scarface does sound like an effort so that's six hours of film watching for one episode which i think deserves all right, credit all right all right <laughs> Fair enough. yeah all well, right. <laughs> we'll see uh how that fares against ben's plan i'd just like to say i've got two words for that uh whole plan yeah it's just barry scarface <laughs> oh yeah he was going to be called barry montana my original idea <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, in a nutshell, what you've done is, you know, apart from the obvious, you've made Barry a drug lord rather than a, a lord, rather than a peer. A member of House yeah. of Lords, yeah. yeah. Do you reckon that's going to get him the respect of the other peers? If it doesn't, then he'll beat it into them. <laughs> All he has in this world is his balls and his word, and he breaks them for no one. <laughs> <laughs> he says, say hello to my little friend, and it's Brian. <laughs> I was playing around with that as well, and it'd just be like the fucking cocking gun, and it'd take him ages to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, I'm saying here and now, Gaz, drug dealing's not going to get you a peerage. Well, Well, 
Pimpin might. Pimpin probably would, yeah. Maybe if uh, Bojo was still in office. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. If nobody has any further questions, guys, let's hear from Ben. Redmond Barry was a man of many talents. From modest beginnings, he had come to live in a stately manner, in a manner befitting a nobleman bred of good manners. Sadly, the fortune was not his, but his good lady wife's, and he could never rest easily knowing he could lose it all tomorrow. No, he needed a title. And to get one, he would need great wealth. But how does one go about amassing a great fortune? As he sat idly drifting across the boating lake in the grounds of a Linden estate, he pondered just this, thinking about how he might use his considerable talents and experience to make the money he needed. He was a skilled soldier and a cunning gambler. If only there were a way he could combine the two, he thought. Suddenly, and for reasons quite unbeknownst to Redmond, he was reminded of the duel many years prior that had set in motion the events that had shaped much of his adult life, the day he shot Captain John Quinn, and how he had been tricked with a pistol loaded with tow, a coarse fibre often used to stuff furniture. It was then that inspiration struck. He paddled back to shore with great vim and vigour, eager to commence work. He would create a dueling-style game that used soft bullets made of tow. <laughs> he would call the game Softball. After several weeks of perfecting the soft bullet and specialised pistol, Redmond invited his wealthy friends to play. At first, they expressed their scepticism that any game could rival the thrill of a gripping game of cards, but soon delighted in playing and indeed gambling on the outcome of the matches. Even going so far as to declare it the most whimsical game of the season, <laughs> Redmond's friends reveled in the thrilling nature of softball so much that they began telling their friends about it. Soon everyone from London to Liverpool was playing it and Redmond was making a fortune selling the proprietary soft bullets and guns, not to mention the side money he made betting on himself as an experienced duelist. With the profits, he was able to continue to fund the king's endeavours in the new world and even supplied the army with softball equipment for training purposes, leading them to become an army without rival, for their skill was unrivaled. <laughs> Soon after, Redmond met the king at a fancy function involving much wig powder, horse sweat, and tobacco. Hearing of Redmond's many contributions to the crown, the king asked him how he could ever repay him. Redmond simply cocked an eyebrow and said, I'm sure we can come to some arrangement. And that is how Redmond became Sir Lord Barry Redmond Lyndon Esquire. So basically he invents a kind of early... Airsoft. Nerf slash paintball. Exactly. And it's so yeah. popular that it generates a lot of income. Airsoft. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he gets it from his experience shooting Captain Quinn with toe. That's what he's told, isn't he? That that's why he didn't kill him because the bullet was was a soft fibre. Yeah. But he finds that out when he was already in the army and it's that fella that tells him, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So by the time he's on the estate, he already knows that and he, he thinks of it and, he think, and it reminds him, oh, it was a soft bullet. Oh, right. I'm going to make this game. That's going to make me sweet bank. Well, you're the front runner so far. Yeah, without doubt. <laughs> <laughs> but only just, I might add. But think about me, because I'm not allowed to vote for myself, so I've got to pick one. You two fucking fools. <laughs> <laughs> or me. You better have some... Yeah, well, that's what I'm hoping. I'm banking on you, Craig. Uh, Count Attacker, <laughs> you handsome, lovely man. <laughs> You really raged against uh, Count Attacker's name this season. Every episode you make the faux pas, you just hate losing the uh, Lord Manly Supreme. Exactly. I'm so used to being called it and not... Uh... You're so embittered by by that loss and the fact yeah. that it was such a resounding victory for Count Attacker. Yeah. Whereas you just you just squeaked over the line ahead of the three of us. <laughs> That's what's the most painful, hardest pill to swallow. The fact that you really cheat, cheated your way to that win by conning us to vote for you with a song. And that the Countertacular actually developed some very good plots and won by a country mile and really showed you for what you were. <laughs> a cheap criminal. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
if nobody else wants to destroy Ben, we can move on to me. You don't need me for this last part, do you? I'm just going to go and cry. In answering the question, how can Barry Lyndon acquire the style and title of Lord Lyndon, there are various words that need to be defined. What is a title? What is a style? What is a lord? And who can give one of these things? During Barry's adult life, the answer to the foremost of these questions was that mad old bastard, King George III. During his lifetime, George III created no fewer than 121 peers of Great Britain. In understanding who they were and why they were made lords, we may gain some insight into how Barry might have achieved this goal and what kind of lordship might best suit him. It occurred to Barry that while a great many men, among whose ranks no small number of Catholic sympathisers and slavers, were elevated to peerage for no other reason than right of birth and in spite of their lesser admirable qualities, just as many men had forged their own paths through military endeavour and political service. Field Marshal Geoffrey Amherst, 1st Baron Amherst, was raised to the peerage on the 14th of May 1776, largely thanks to his military career. Barry feared, however, that he would sooner send other men and boys to their deaths these days than revisit those horrors upon himself. John Murray, 4th Duke of Athol, was known as the Planting Duke, having introduced Japanese larch to Great Britain and bred it with the European larch planted by his uncle, giving rise to the Dunkeld Larch. Barry's thumb may have been the only part of him that wasn't green. John Parker, 1st Baron Boringdon, like Barry, collected paintings, and, like Barry, purchased a horse. But the horse he ran in the derby, and he also turned his hand to politics. Might Barry find himself elected into a peerage? William Eden, 1st Baron Auckland, had been a spy, as had George Doddington, 1st Baron Malcolm, who had been born inauspiciously George Bubb. Thomas Dubdus, 1st Baron Dundas, had commissioned the world's first practical steamboat. George Douglas, 16th Earl of Morton, was a Freemason. William Douglas, 4th Duke of Queensbury, was a reputed high-stakes gambler. John Stuart, 7th Earl of Galloway, held the esteemed, trusted, and powerful office of His Majesty's Lord of the Bedchamber, a title Barry might have greatly fancied. <laughs> Charles Jenkinson, 1st Earl of Liverpool, whose father was a mere colonel, had ingratiated himself to His Majesty and become leader of the King's Friends in the House of Commons. As Barry thought about steamboats and Masonic rites and bedchambers, he began to recall the qualities and skills he'd learned during his ascent. He was a great reader of men and a fine mimic. He need only find the right man to whom to ingratiate himself, to flatter, to become, and, if necessary, to usurp. And so it was that Barry set his mind to joining that most noble of houses, the Grand Lodge of the Freemasons. He began by inviting known masons to his card table, swindling them on most hands, but allowing them to win the odd small stakes round, paying out some small trifles, but refusing to take their money, citing a love of the game. For this, he was able to make fast friends with the Masonic brothers, some of whom were also gentlemen of His Majesty's bedchambers, and before long, he was attending the lodge. He soon expressed his desire to initiate his beloved stepson, Lord Bullingdon, into the fine tradition, which the brothers could scarcely refuse. Adorned in Masonic robes and a mask, Barry attended many a ritual as Lord Bullingdon, earning the boy a reputation as a clumsy, wet little brat. Come the day of the music recital, when Lord Bullingdon ushered his younger sibling into the room, set to goad their father, several brothers stepped in to diplomatically defuse the situation, leaving no doubt in the hearts and minds of high society that Barry was beyond reproach and his son was a prick. Before long, Barry's Masonic brother, Prince Edward, Duke of Kent and Strathern, brought up Barry to his royal father, and Barry became Lord Lyndon and an insufferable cunt. <laughs> so in a nutshell, he joins the Masons, 
make his stepson look like a prick. Yeah, he pretends Bullingdon is joining yeah. the Masons, but it's really him in disguise, master yeah. of disguise that he is. Would the other Masons not question where Redmond was when he was pretending to be Bullingdon? No, because they're all robed and shit and wearing masks. They assume he's there somewhere. It's kind of like eyes wide shut. So how do they know it's Bullingdon? Well, he, you know, he puts on a little wet voice. A little Bullingdon <laughs> act. Can you yeah. give us a sample of that voice, please? Hello, I'm here to join the Mason. <laughs> okay, that's quite good. And he'll say, uh, <laughs> where is that oik, Redmond Barry? And then one of the Masons will say, it's a secret. That's why we're all wearing robes and masks. And would he dab his mouth with a handkerchief like posh people do sometimes? No, he's wearing like a mask, you know. He'd dab his mask. Dab his mask, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes, quite. <laughs> a little, little partly inspired by uh, Eyes Wide Shut. The factual part of it was very good. Yes, I like. I quite like that. I, I did. That's my first note on that plan was historical aspect. I just have a feeling that the Masons would intervene beforehand. They would. They would say to oh. to Redmond, "Listen, your your stepson is a bit of a wanker. Sort him out. Because if you don't, potentially you're out as well. <laughs> potentially, club of." No, no Lindens. Exactly. Yeah, God, you can imagine, like, even back then when they didn't need to be, like, really super secretive, how ostentatious the Masons must have been. But the thing is, because Barry is himself masquerading as Lord Bullingdon, if that did happen, he could adjust his um, his prickishness. Ah, okay. He's, he's in control. Would he let Lord Bullingdon go through the initiation? No, Lord Bullingdon has never been to the Masonic Lodge. Okay. And they don't talk about it outside the Lodge, of course, so nobody would ever go, good to see you at the Lodge the other day, Lord Bullingdon, because it's it's like Fight Club, isn't it? Or what if they just go in for the handshake and Lord Bullingdon knows nothing, and it's like, curious. It's like a wet fish. It, it, they, they'd ask him about it next time they were at the Lodge, and, and he'd go, oh yes, um, I'm just so clumsy. That I can't perform the handshake <laughs> under pressure. Uh, I'd be wanking an awful lot that morning and my <laughs> hand had gone limp. <laughs> I'd become claw-like. My father had given me the whip, which I had, of course, asked for. And my derriere hurt so much that I could scarcely <laughs> concentrate. As I squeeze your hand, I was like, oh, my bum. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> You have satisfied me. Have you demanded satisfaction and got it? I demanded it, and I have indeed received it. If I were to criticise my plan one bit, I think I might have got carried away listing all the different peers. But I thought, yeah, you did. I was thinking, how long is this going to go for? <laughs> well, I read all 121 of them. I, I literally hell. read about every peer because we had so long, Fuck it and hell. I just thought some of them were really funny, like the the planting guy and the guy who yeah. invented Friend the world. Friend of the king. First practical steamboat. King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm the king's friend, you know. I'm the fucking. I'm his fucking friend. <laughs> oh, All right then. Wait, 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 Gaz. Any uh, any last questions? No. <laughs> well then, some truly diabolical schemes there. But who will get the votes? So first, we had. Adam's Mickey Mouse munitions plan. Then we had Gaz's Scarface synopsis. <laughs> That's then we had Ben's advantageous airsoft. And finally, we had my Masonic masquerade. So if you could please cast your votes. And remember, you can't vote for yourself. Who do you vote for, Gaz? I voted for Ben. Gentle Ben. <laughs> See that? Gentle oh. Ben. <laughs> and Adam, who have you voted for? Counter-attack, la la la. Counter-attack, la. And Ben, who have you voted for? I too have voted for Count Spectacular. Spectacular. Another bastardization of my name. I'll forgive you, and I have also voted for Ben. So that's two to me Ooh. and two to Ben. Gaz, could we please see how that's affected the season three leaderboard?
in first place with 19 points is Countertacular. Oh, oh, it's me. In joint second place with 14 points are Ben and Adam. And mm. bringing up the rear with 12 points is me. All right, all right. Well, that has removed the cat from amongst the pigeons. Next week, Gaz will be on hosting duties. To what diabolical film will you be subjecting us, Gaz? I shall be subjecting The Panel of Peril to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. All right, Psycho. And that about does it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you ever want to make something of yourself, make sure you subscribe, hit the bell, and leave us a review on the very platform on which you're currently listening. You can follow us on social mediums at Diabolical Pod. Next week, we'll be competing to improve on the diabolical plan of psycho Norman Bates. Until then, kiss me, my boy, for we shall never meet again. Until next week. <laughs> Until then, something I've written. Obviously, I've forgotten to come back. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's going in the bloopers. <laughs> I'd just like to say I'm absolutely chuffed to bits that a plan I spent a fair bit of time on received the exact same amount of points as the synopsis to another film. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking well chuffed. <laughs> One in Moscow, two, they got four of them in Sydney and a couple in Kathmandu. So whether you sing or pull a pint, you'll always have a job. Because wherever you go around the world, you find an Irish pub.